Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau42.com and hosted by myself, Blaine Dowler. This month we are looking at the emotional spectrum and the way it's defined and used in Green Lantern comics, and Red Lanterns now, from the DC Universe. Typically the topics that we choose are ones that are suggested by our listeners, and we've still got a fair number of suggestions on that list that we haven't gotten to yet. The reason I'm pulling this one up sooner, even though it's one that I suggested and I try to leave my own suggestions out for a while and do the listener suggestions instead, is because I was recently given the opportunity to come on and have a bit of a guest spot on Just One of the Guys, Sean Engel's podcast over on the Two True Freaks Network. So I figured I'd return the favor, do a little bit of Green Lantern talk here and go through some of that, and then finish with a plug for Sean Engel's show, which I've just started listening to recently and have been enjoying so far. So a quick recap of the emotional spectrum in Green Lantern comics, especially for those who haven't been reading Green Lantern in the last 10 years or so. Green Lantern has gone through a few incarnations. He originally started as Alan Scott back in the golden age of comics, as it were, or around 1940. Now in that incarnation... Alan Scott had a ring and a lantern, and he could charge that ring from the lantern, do anything he wanted as long as it was controlled by willpower, was in a 24-hour time limit in terms of how long the charge lasted, and he wasn't trying to have a direct impact on wood or other organics because the ring had no impact on those. Now that was a nice limitation because there are definite chemical differences between organic and inorganic materials. As far as a chemist is concerned, all produce is organic produce as I told the individual who was lined up behind me at a grocery store a few months ago who actually chewed me out and called me irresponsible for not buying organic produce. So, yeah, I gave a chemistry lesson in line. Sue me. In any event, we don't really have to study the science of the Golden Age Green Lantern, because that, on paper, was powered by magic. I actually wanted to call Alan Scott Alan Ladd as a reference to Aladdin, but then found out that there was actually an actor by that name, so they probably shouldn't. Now, that went away for a while with the whole comics implosion after the Wortham trials and seduction of the innocent and all that stuff. And Green Lantern was brought back in the Silver Age of the late 50s as a science fiction concept, with Hal Jordan bearing the ring now. Now, this ring was still controlled by willpower and had a 24-hour time limit, again, regardless of usage levels, which they fix later by basically saying that's an artificially imposed limit from the Guardians who are running the Green Lantern Corps, just to make sure that the ring is checking in with the Lanterns regularly and submitting its logs and reports back to home base. Instead of being limited by organics versus inorganics, it wasn't able to impact anything yellow. Artistically, that makes sense. One of the criteria for being selected as a Green Lantern was that the user had to be without fear. And, at least as far as human culture is concerned, yellow is the color of fear. The comic pages offered multiple explanations for that so-called yellow impurity over the years. There was even a fairly early issue where the yellow impurity was removed from Hal Jordan's ring and lantern, but he soon found out he couldn't recharge the ring, and the yellow impurity was a requirement for the rings to behave the way they traditionally do. And then we have Thal Sinestro, one of Green Lantern's major villains, if not the major villain, he was running a yellow ring from the antimatter universe that had no limitations with green. So he basically had a more powerful ring than Hal Jordan did. And again, it was that green-yellow color of fear sort of dichotomy. So at some point, I do need to address the antimatter dimensions in both Marvel and DC, but that'll be down the road. Later on, when Kyle Rayner took over as the Green Lantern, they removed the yellow impurity and the 24-hour time limit. Removing the 24-hour time limit was easy enough to do at the time, since there no longer was an Oa or Guardians 
to really control the ring and put that artificial limit on it. They didn't really give a clear explanation for why it was no longer limited by the color yellow. That was corrected to large degree in Green Lantern Rebirth by Jeff Johns and Ethan Van Sciver, and it was the Jeff Johns run that really defined a lot of it. So they explained why Kyle Rayner's ring could suddenly affect yellow when others couldn't, and worked around that so it's no longer that yellow is completely immune to the power of the ring, it's just more difficult to manipulate. Because they put it as canon on page that yellow is associated with fear. And through the Sinestro Core War, spoilers at the end of that excellent storyline, they reveal that there's an entire emotional spectrum. So all of the colors in what humans generally consider the spectrum are associated with an emotion, or at least a driving factor in human psychology, as Jeff John sees it. And these different colors are represented by different core. So the main seven colors and cores are red, powered by rage, orange, powered by avarice, yellow, powered by fear, green, by willpower, blue, by hope, indigo, by compassion, violet, by love, and then they also layered on two others, white, which is the combination of all these human driving factors as representative of life, and black, the absence of these all, representative of death. So the question becomes, does this emotional spectrum hold up as a science fiction concept? Is there a plausibility to this science? Well, if there is, then that would mean that both the color spectrum that's associated with these emotions and these emotional states are universal concepts. So not just dealing with humans of Earth, but also with members of other species, such as, you know, your Kilowogs, your Salaks, your Sinestros. All these different representatives all have different species. They would have to perceive both colors and emotions in the same way in order for this to be a viable concept for a diverse universe. So let's start with the emotional side. Can the emotions felt by all living beings in the universe be stored in a battery as they're represented in the comics? So the idea is that it draws on willpower as it's felt by every being out there and stores it in the green power battery. And there's another battery storing fear and there's another battery storing anger and so forth. Well, as we'll soon find out, they can't actually be transmitted and stored that way as a definitive selection based on what emotion you're feeling but emotions can actually be used as a control mechanism. So studies have found, especially recent studies by Carnegie Mellon, that active brain scans of people feeling different emotions are consistent. So you take any group of human beings and scan their brains while they're feeling anger, and the same sections of the brain are active and light up. So different components of the brain are responsible for different emotions. So if you have a ring created by a race that achieved sentience millions of years before humans and started developing their technology, it is not inconceivable that this ring would be able to scan the brain of its user and activate based on a particular emotional state, similar to how Siri activates when iPhone users hold down the home button. So that emotional state being triggered is what sends the signal to the ring saying, oh, get ready to receive instructions, do what the user wants. In, again, a form of mind reading, right? It's just willpower, they think about it, and it happens. Or Sinestro thinks about it, and it happens. The Red Lanterns lash out, almost instinctively. That is basically a form of mind control, and the emotional state is just the, okay, turn on, read my thoughts, make the, these things happen trigger. So at that point, the mechanism is viable. So when the energy is released, is it viable and reasonable to assume that this released energy is actually going to be able to be stored. Well, when we're feeling emotions, and when those neurons light up and are received by brain scans, what that means is we are releasing energy. So current is flowing through those neurons. 
And every time current flows, whether it's through wires or neurons, electromagnetic waves are radiated. And that's actually how we can scan someone's brain from outside the skull. That radiation depends solely on the shape of a neuron and not on its location. Which means even though different areas of the brain light up when you're feeling angry or sad or afraid, the actual radiation comes out in about the same profile. So the only way for something to really store energy based on emotions is if it's able to scan the entire universe and figure out what orientation that person's head was in when they released that energy, and then selectively store just the energy from that emotion. If you're at that point, why be selective at all? Because you could absorb any emotion and charge up the battery, why not just store it all? So there's really no viable practical way to make that work. It works well enough from an artistic standpoint, but only from the art side, not from the science. So the other aspect of this emotional spectrum that we need to confirm is that emotional states are the same for all species, regardless of what planet you developed on. Now, that is a lot more plausible. Emotions largely exist as a result of evolution to help guide our decisions. Not necessarily in terms of making the best decision with jobs or things like that, but guiding our decisions into those that are not necessarily safe but optimal for procreation. So either by avoiding obvious danger or improving stature and status as viewed by the gender you want to mate with, that's what the emotions typically guide you to. It's not coming from a place of logic. It's coming from a place of how your species can make more of your species. And a lot of these emotions have been found in other animals on Earth. It's not unreasonable to assume that life on other worlds would have a similar range of emotions. It's certainly not guaranteed, but it's at least plausible. And in the DC Universe, the members of the Green Lantern Corps are typically written with that same range of emotions that human beings have, which could be part of the reason that they are selected as members of the Corps, so it's something I can accept. So now that we've examined the emotion side, we need to move on and look at the color side. So are the colors that we perceive and are associated with the spectrum universal? Well, to do that, we have to figure out what defines color. The electromagnetic spectrum is what produces light. If we sort the spectrum from least to most energy, we have radio waves, microwaves, infrared, meaning below red, less energy than red. Then we've got our visible spectrum, typically called red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, followed by ultraviolet or beyond violet, X-rays, gamma rays, and cosmic rays. Now the visible spectrum is just a tiny little window in the middle. And we consider it the visible spectrum because it's the spectrum that our eyes detect. And we've associated color labels to them according to how humans perceive them. So if colors are going to be universal, we need to make sure that all species perceive colors the same way. And we can start that by checking Earth. Now if everything on Earth perceives colors the same way, it's some supporting evidence, but still not great, because we all developed and evolved in a single location, possibly from a single common microbial ancestor. So there may have been some bias there. Well, as it turns out, we don't have to worry about that bias, because no, different species see things in a very different way. The human eye has two basic types of light detectors. These are rods and cones. Rods trigger off with very little exposure to light, and are triggered by either green or blue in very low light conditions. So if it's you know, just after sunset, if it's before sunrise, if you've got starlight with a new moon, so there's not a lot of moonlight, no street lights, other very dim light conditions, you might be able to see a little bit of green and blue. It's unlikely. Most likely you're going to be colorblind and you'll perceive reds as blacks while you perceive greens and blues as gray. That's because rods only collect basic information that light is there or it is not. 
So black and white film is based on a similar principle, where they've found emulsion or chemicals that respond to light other than red, just like our eyes do, which is why a lot of dark rooms, if you're working with black and white film, you can have red lights on, and it doesn't disrupt the film. If you're dealing with color film, you've got to be working in the dark. So the rods trigger almost regardless of color. There's no distinction between green and blue. We also have cones, and cones are where the color perception comes in. Because we do see different colors, including red, during the day when we've got bright enough conditions, or when the lights are on at night. That's because we actually have three different types of cones. There's red, green, and blue, named for the wavelengths of light that trigger those particular cones. So let's take a look at these and see how that builds that seven color spectrum that we're used to talking about. That red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet range. So we'll take a look at these three cones. And let's assume that each of these cones either triggers or it does not. So it's really two states. You don't have any variation in color. You either see color or you don't. Well, if that's the case, you have two options for red, two options for green, and two options for blue. They're either on or off, which means we have a total of eight different colors that we can perceive. So if all three are off or not triggered, then we have black. If we trigger only one at a time, we've got three options, red, green, and blue. If we trigger two at a time, we still have three options. Effectively, not red, not green, and not blue. The not blue, or the combination of red and green triggering, is yellow. When we see just red and blue, we call it magenta. And when we see green and blue, we call it cyan. If all three are triggering, we call it white. So even if we remove black and white, as we do when we're looking at the spectrum, that's not seven colors, that's six. So if we're going to have seven colors like we talk about, we need to somehow get more options. If you examine things closely, you find that the human eye is actually more sensitive to green than to blue. So we can break that down a little bit further. So let's say red and blue are either on or off, but green has three states. So it's either on, partly on, or all on. In that case, we don't have two times two times two equals eight choices to make. We've got two times three times two, which are 12 options. If you eliminate black and whatever we call white, whether that's red, green, and blue in equal proportions or red, green, and blue all the way, you know, one is probably going to be perceived as white. The other one is a pale green. Well, that gets us down to 10, maybe nine if we take both versions of all three colors triggering and say they're both white. Either way, that's not seven. If we add more gradations to these three red, green, and blue cones, the final result will always be more than seven because we're adding more options than we have now. That's going to increase every single time. And that's not even getting into the issues we have with various forms of color blindness and sensitivity that exist out there in the human species due to having multiple versions of red, multiple versions of green, and multiple versions of blue in the human genome. So there are some rare individuals that could see more than the average person, and more commonly we get individuals, particularly males, who see fewer colors. It's mostly male because the red and green cones are coded by proteins that are side-by-side -side on the X chromosome and don't exist on the Y. So if there's mistakes between them where you get two reds or two greens because they're side-by-side, -side, there's no redundancy and backup on the other chromosome, you get someone born without a particular cone. So if the number of viewable colors is given by the number of states allowed in each cone all multiplied together, so the number of options for red, the number of options for green, and the number of options of blue, well, then we're going to have more than just seven colors. Assuming we always subtract off two to get black and white, we've seen we go right from six to ten, with nothing in between. Now, different species on Earth also have different options. Dogs only have green and blue cones with no red, 
Bees and butterflies actually have five different cones, including cones that respond to infrared and ultraviolet. We consider them outside the visible spectrum because the visible spectrum was defined according to human limitations. But these insects actually have a broader visual spectrum than we do. So some flowers that seem bland to us are very attractive to them because they're seeing colors that the human brain can neither perceive nor process. And to go more extreme, the most extreme case known in nature, the mantis shrimp has 16 different cones. So even if we look at the basic on-off states, where we got to eight colors, including black and white, the mantis shrimp sees 256 basic colors on their color wheel, most of which the human brain cannot process. Now, most humans can see about 10 million different colors. That means, on average, we could see 215 different shades of light, or 215 different states in each of these cones. If the mantis shrimp has the same average sensitivity, so each of their cones can see in 215 different shades of that color, then they can see about 20 undekillion different colors. So what's an undekillion? Well, one group of three zeros beyond thousand is million, two groups is billion, three groups is trillion, four groups is quadrillion, five is quintillion, 11 groups of three is undectillion. So 20 of those, the human brain just cannot process the way a mantis shrimp sees the world. So the only way to see seven colors in the spectrum after eliminating black and white is to have nine options, including black and white. Nine is the perfect square of a prime number. So if you're going to have two numbers multiplied together, each of which has at least two options, you can't have one times nine because then there's a cone that only has one state. That's either always on or always off. Our brain would ignore that information. It wouldn't go into the color processing. We just have the nine from the other cone. Well, the only option left is to have two cones with three options each. So a dog with green and blue cones only, a dog might break the world into seven basic colors, but humans wouldn't. So if that's the case, and humans cannot perceive colors this way, how the heck did the natural spectrum of red, green, blue, yellow, magenta, and cyan become orange, yellow, red, green, blue, indigo, and violet? Now you could think it might have started with pigmentation, where the basic colors are not red, green, blue, but red, yellow, blue, according to the way the pigments mix. And then those mixtures reflect differently, and they are perceived by our eyes in different ways. But that's actually not where it came about. It started with light. The first person to define the spectrum was Isaac Newton. He's known today primarily as a physicist and mathematician. In physics, doing a lot of work in terms of both gravity and optics, and as a mathematician, inventing calculus to do the physics problems he was presented with by working with gravity and other bodies in motion. It was the work in optics where he was the first to split white light into its different component parts. So as I said, he's known today as a physicist and mathematician, but originally he did just as much time investigating theology and numerology. And he thought, in particular, that music was a universal language, able to produce specific emotions from people of all countries in the same way. So therefore, that was a direct communication from God. That was his logic. Now, since there's seven unique divisions in an octave before it repeats, so that's the periodicity, he felt that the number seven was representative of God and associated with God, and that all things that come directly from God should come in multiples of seven. Six, on the other hand, was commonly considered to be the number of the devil or Satan. So anything from God would be associated with the number seven. Anything that came directly from Satan would come from the number six. And he used these numbers to help guide his perception of the world. Now, since light allowed us to see so much of his God's creation, then he also felt it was a universal part of the human experience. So it just had to be from God and associated with the number seven instead of six. 
So when he first broke light into the spectrum and saw a number that didn't match the octaves in music, well, that was a problem for him. He figured it had to match. It had to be the same because that was where his theology came from. So he went back and he looked really, really hard and he found that missing color in what we now call indigo. So this is one of the things that needs to be believed to be seen. He wanted it there. He believed it was there. And by Jove, he found it. So that's where the seven comes from. So to recap, yeah, emotional states theoretically can be used to activate and control these advanced devices in these various rings, but the rings wouldn't be powered by the emotions and they can't be collected from everyone because everyone has different shapes of neurons. Therefore, they would emit different frequencies of radiation. They can't be universally connected to seven colors because the perceivable colors vary wildly by physiology, even on one planet, let alone across the universe of the galaxy. There is no reason to think that they don't vary even more wildly throughout the universe. And there's certainly no reason to think that they'll assign colors to emotions using the same cultural bias as humans. Even if we do encounter species that perceive yellow the same way we do, there's no reason that they would choose to associate yellow with fear as the human species had. So that's where we are. As much as the emotional spectrum has given depth to the Green Lantern universe, even if I think they've been leaning a little too heavily on it since its introduction, and even if it does work well artistically on the page and tie in nicely with Jeff Johns' view of the universe in terms of human motivators and other elements, as a science fiction concept, it doesn't hold up. So really the only piece that does work is triggering the rings based on your mental or emotional state. That piece is viable. The rest does not work the way it's been explained to us. As a longtime Green Lantern reader, I'm okay with that. Because the explanations we've had have all so far come from the Guardians of Oa. And if we know one thing about the Guardians of Oa, they lie through their teeth on a regular basis, especially when it comes to explaining how their technology works, which might allow someone to exploit a weakness within it. So I'm willing to say, yeah, the rings and the various cores do work in the Green Lantern universe. They just don't work exactly the way they've been explained to us because the Guardians lie. So that wraps it up for this month. Join us again on the last Wednesday of next month and every month thereafter for another chapter of Comic Book Physics. Once again, I'm your host, Blaine Daller. I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around for a couple more minutes to listen to a promo spot for just one of the guys, and possibly even to tune into that show in the coming weeks. I believe my guest spot on there will be a part of sort of an anthology-style episode with a number of guest spots, which I believe will be episode number 126. Thank you for listening. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo Manzo. And where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so... You will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, 
I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com. And I am gathering a podcast such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network. And in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean that I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com.